today, Herschel Greenblatt was born in the caves of Ukraine and he survived the Holocaust because of the resourcefulness and determination of his parents in evading the Nazis. As he states, it is because of my parents' unwavering will that we were able to survive the horrors of the Holocaust. When the family settled in Atlanta, Herschel learned how to become an American as well as an active member of this Southern community. He's been very, many Holocaust survivors have been especially busy this week uh, speaking around Atlanta and Herschel will be speaking again tomorrow. We are grateful that he and Rochelle are here and that he agreed to come and talk with us. Herschel. Shabbat shalom. Thank you so much for inviting me. This service was uh, meaningful and I will be talking to you about my parents and how they survived, how they resisted and made sure that their children survived after losing everyone. My father lost his whole family. My mother lost some of her family. Her two sisters were able to leave in 1932 and actually went to Israel. I'm going to take you on a journey. We're going to go on a little journey together of survival, resistance, and just out pure guts. September the 1st, 1939, Hitler and the Nazis met with the Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, and basically said, hey, just let us keep the Sudetenland, a small country that we just acquired, and that's all we want. We want peace. Well, 
Hitler, the Nazis, lied. September the 1st, 1939, after Neville Chamberlain went home and told the British that we're going to have peace in our time. That was his exact words. September 1st, 1939, probably one of the greatest armies in history invaded the small country of Poland. It took about 17 days, and in 17 days, an average of about 3,000 human beings were murdered. There was only one reason for that. They were Jews. Ladies and gentlemen, there was no other reason why this happened. The ones that survived, what happened? At first, Hitler and the Nazis wanted to control, wanted to make sure that there was going to be no resistance by the Jews. How do you control? Well, you put them into ghettos. They would take small areas of a town, city, surround them by electric barbed wire, vicious dogs, and probably even more vicious guards. They would cram 15, 20 people into a small room, men, women, children together, infants, and basically would starve them the food was maybe a tiny piece of bread once or twice a week, and every once in a while, some warm water with some potato flavoring. One of the worst things that you can do to a human being is starvation. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, starvation, you know, like you're going to go home after school maybe and say, hey, Mom, I'm hungry. Well, you know, get a snack. It wasn't that kind of starvation. It was just pure out-and-out -out agony. Let me describe the conditions in these rooms that these people were forced. Toilet facilities? No. If a young lady wanted to go to the bathroom, there was a can or a pot in the corner of the room and she could just squat down in front of everybody. They took away her dignity. If an elderly died, they would just let them lay there. My father, 19 years old, 
wanted to fight back. My father's hometown, the city of Lublin, which is right on the border between Poland and the Ukraine. My father was the youngest of 16 children. The other 15 were all girls. There was about three or four sets of twins. My father's 19 years old. He wants to fight back. He wants to do what he could possibly do against unsurmountable odds. This was one of the greatest armies of all time. And they were bound and determined to humiliate and destroy the Jews of Poland. My father would hide along with other resistance. They would hide in the sewers and basements and attics and fight with whatever they had, rocks, stones. They had some guns. But that's the one thing the Nazis did not want anybody to fight back. So he was being hunted. He made a decision. He knew that if he was caught, he would be killed right on the spot. So his decision was to escape, to leave his home, to leave his family, never ever to see them again. Sometimes in the first part of November of 1939, my father escaped across the border into the Ukraine. This is what the Ukraine looked like in 1939, part of Russia. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a geography lesson here. I want you to look at this map, and I want you to separate the Ukraine into four specific areas, A, B, C, and D. And in a few moments, I'll tell you why. Now, he escapes across the border, but he still wants to resist. He still wants to fight. Now, who are you going to resist and fight against in Russia? The Russian police, the Russian gulags, even the Russian people. They would take away their properties. They would humiliate. They would destroy their synagogues. They would defile the Torah. Eventually, my father found his way into an area of the Ukraine near the city of Krimichuk. The city of Krimichuk is about 50 to 60 miles 
southeast of Kiev. In that part of the Ukraine, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of underground caves, subterranean caves. They go down for miles. They are wet. They are cold. They are dark. They are uninhabitable. But it has been proven that many number of Jews and Jewish families survived underground in hiding at first from the Russian police and of course later on from the Nazis. A young group of underground fighters in Russia, there was my mother in that group. My mother, her name was Manya. She was 18 years old. I'll describe her to you. She was maybe right at about five feet tall. And I don't think she ever went over 100 pounds. But ladies and gentlemen, there was no stronger human being ever. Now, my father eventually found his way to this group because he still wanted to continue. He met Manya. Hey, he's 19, pretty good looking. I look a lot like him. <laughs> my mother, she was beautiful. She was one of the kindest people you would ever want to meet. They met, of course, you know, they fell in love. And in the early summer of 1940, they got married. In all the turmoil, in all the ungodliness of the Nazis. About a year later, underground, I was born. I spent the first year or so of my existence in the dark, in the cold, in the wet, but my mother made sure that I survived. June 1941, the Nazis invade Russia. One afternoon, my parents, it was their turn to go out for supplies or food and a little bad luck, they came upon a small battle or a fight between some Nazis and some Russian soldiers. They were hiding behind some rocks and a jeep blew up. The shrapnel from that jeep a piece of it found its way into the upper part, upper right leg, 
right at the hip of my mother. She was bleeding to death. My father had to make a decision. I've got to get her to a hospital. I've got to save her. Now, you know, back then you couldn't pick up a phone and dial 911. All my father had was a horse-drawn cart, and he knew that if he tried to take her to a safe place, which was about 45 miles away, and also try to take a young infant child, the probability of the three of us making it was going to be impossible. So what did he do? He left me. He told the people that he was with, the, the families down, and he said, I'm going to have to leave my son with you because if I don't get my wife to a hospital, she's going to die. So he said, but we'll be back as soon as we can get medical attention. And hopefully my child will still be alive. About eight or nine weeks later, both my parents came back, my mother on crutches. My mother was pretty much in tremendous amount of pain for the rest of her life. They came back, and as you can readily see, I was still alive. But the problem was, what can she do to help? What can my father do to help? Because he had to take care of her and an infant child. So they made another decision. That decision was to leave, to escape, to go farther east. And where they went, in the bottom right-hand corner, the city of Krasnar from the city of Krimichuk to the city of Krasnar. It's about 350 miles, give or take a mile or so. First thing my father did is our clothing became so terrible, we pretty much became like gypsies. What my father did is we actually hid in plain sight. He took every piece of identification that we had and destroyed it. We became nobody. 350, 400 miles, it actually took us about three and a half months to make that journey. Now, that part of the Ukraine is very heavily forest. There's a lot of vegetation, good places to hide during the summer. 
We get there, we hide with about 20 some odd families. It's summertime, weather's good, but what about the Russian winters? We, we would freeze to death. So my mother went from house to house begging, I'll clean your houses, I'll clean your toilets, I'll clean, I'll sew, I'll cook, whatever it takes. Just let me and my family sleep in the basement where it's warm. Now, as I said, my father liked to hide in plain sight. Well, you can't get any plainer than actually working with the Russian army. He took a job in a Russian training camp in the bakery. But one afternoon, he made an awful mistake. That was, he decided that he would take a couple of loaves of bread that he had just baked and hide them under his jacket and take it home to his family. Big mistake. He got caught. And for trying to take two loaves of bread home to his family, my father was imprisoned by the Russians my mother did not know whether he was alive or dead. That was in March of 1943. In April of 1943, my sister Anne was born. So my mother, not even knowing that her husband was still alive, had two small children. And for the rest of the war, from April of 1943 till late 1945, she was on her own. And often I would ask her as we sat at the table in the kitchen while she was cooking dinner, I asked her, how do, how do we do it? How did we survive? And the only thing she could tell me was, because we had to. Just uh, a picture, and mainly where all the caves are in the Ukraine. And in the right, that's how, that's how the caves looked. You had to go down into them. They were steep, and they were cold, and they were dangerous. Let's go back. As I said, picture the Ukraine into four specific areas. Next few minutes, we're going to talk about family and what happened. This is my grandparents, my mother's parents. By the way, these pictures my mother snuck out in her a black pocketbook. So that's how I have them. Now, I never got to know these two people. I never got 
the love of a grandparent. That's the same lady, many, many years later, that beautiful infant child that she's holding is my mother. That is one of her brothers. She had two brothers. And that is one of her sisters. She had two sisters. As I said, her sisters were married. But they were much older than my mother. They married and they left for Israel in 1932. So thankfully, I still have family in Israel. Separate the Ukraine. Now, the first, the, the one thing that people don't realize is that at first, Hitler did not want to murder anybody. He just wanted them to die on their own of starvation. And he said to the rest of the world, hey, take these Jews off our hands. I don't want them. Take them. Well, the United States didn't take, wouldn't want them. South America, nobody wanted Nobody in the world wanted them. Wanted us. So Hitler said, well, hey, if nobody wants them, I'll just kill them. I got plenty of machine guns. So he got a hold of Adolf Eichmann and said, come up with a plan. He did. And what he did is he enlisted about 3,000 German soldiers that were the worst of the worst. They were called the Eisenstaatengruppen, the mobile killing machines. And what they did is he stationed, there was about 3,000 of them, and he stationed them in four specific areas of the Ukraine. And they would go into people's homes, into people's towns, and they said, tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, you are to report to the train station or a designated area and bring all your possessions, bring all your valuables, bring everything because we're going to repatriate. You're going to go to a nicer place. So everybody comes, and what they did is a lot of them were deported to other specific areas in the Ukraine. And for the most part, they would take the people in that area around their homes, and they would march them to a secluded area where there was no witnesses, and either the Germans or they made the Jews dig trenches about oh, eight feet deep, about 10 feet across. They took their possessions away. They made them naked, make them take all their clothes off. 
The women, they shave their heads because they use the hair to make uniforms. And once they did that, and again, it was men and women and children together, it didn't matter because that's how they would humiliate. When you're naked, it's the worst of the humiliation. They would march them into the secluded areas, and then they would take, first they would take the men and line them up in front of the trench, and they had stationed machine guns about, oh, six feet apart, and they would shoot them in the back with machine guns, and they fall into the pit. And if they're not dead yet, they stood right above them and just shoot them individually. And then they would take the women and children. Now, why did they take the men first? So to be sure there was no resistance when the women and children were murdered. Infants, they didn't even want to waste a bullet on them. They would just throw them in the pit knowing they would die when they were covered up with dirt. On September the 29th of 1941, it has been verified at a place called Bobby Yar, 38,000 human beings were shot to death in a 24, excuse me, a 48-hour period. 38,000. Other than my mother and her sisters, my grandparents, her two brothers, their wives, and their children were murdered shot in the back for the one simple reason that they were Jews. My father's family, or some of them, that's my father in the upper right-hand corner. Those are some of his sisters, their husbands, his parents. My father found out after the war, what happened to them. Now, Hitler finally said, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm spending a heck of a lot, I'm wasting a heck of a lot of money, and uh, man, you know, uh, soldiers shooting these people to death. I can't afford all these bullets, so let's come up with something else. So, here comes Eichmann again, and in January of 1942, at a result called Vonsay, southeast of Berlin, which was the home of a prominent physician, Jewish physician, he gathered about 20 of the hierarchy of the German government, 
over lunch, they had lunch, and they sat down and with their wine and laughing and cussing about the Jews. It took about, oh, an hour, a little over an hour and a half, and they voted, and they came up with what is called the final solution. What was the final solution? Concentration camps. Gas. Crematoriums. That was going to be faster. So they opened up these camps, Auschwitz-Birkenau, Bergen-Belsen, Dachau, Sobobor, Belzig, and they also built a brand new one outside the city of Lublin called Majdanek. Madonna concentration camp had it all. They had the gas chambers, they had the ovens, the crematoriums, they were prepared. So they went into the ghetto of Lublin and told the people, hey, now these people have been there for a couple of years or so, and said, we're going to take you out of here. We're going to take you to a nicer place, a factory. You've got to be able to take a shower, get cleaned up, get food, and we're going to work together. So they marched all the people out of the ghetto about a mile and two miles to Majdanek, and they told them to get undressed, that they were all going to take showers. And they made the men and women and children take showers together. And they weren't families. Again, humiliation. Once they took the showers, they said, well, you've got to go to another area to be disinfected, because, you know, the lice and all the other. So they shoved them into this other room, and there were other shower heads, but there wasn't going to be any disinfectant. From the ceiling, they threw in Zyklone B pellets after they locked the doors, and they crammed these people in so tight that they couldn't move. After a while, the screaming, the crying stopped. They took the bodies to the crematoriums, to the ovens, and burned them. Ladies and gentlemen, everyone in this picture other than my father were gassed and their bodies burned in the crematoriums of Majdanek concentration camp. 
Now, when you're in school, you're taught about the Holocaust. Probably the first thing that you're told, six million human beings. You were given a whole lot of numbers. One and a half million children under the age of 12. One and a half million children under the age of 12. So you sit in class, well, they're just numbers. They're not numbers, ladies and gentlemen. Those are two of my father's sisters, one of the set of twins, their husbands. They're human beings, they're not numbers. So, my father found out after the war what happened to his family and what happened to my mother's family. That's what he did for almost five years. Uh, after the war, I very, very rarely saw my father. Let's go back to our journey. September 1945, after the war ends, my father's actually released from prison. Weighed less than 100 pounds, and by an underground way, found his way to my mother, myself, and my sister. This picture was taken in late September of 1945. Well, the war's over. Hallelujah. Well, not so much for the Jews of Russia. Stalin, communism, the Iron Curtain, the Red Purge, the Gulags, what Stalin needed was workers, communism. Who better, who better to enslave as workers? The Jews. So things weren't going to be any better for the Jews after the war in Russia. My father and about 20 other families made a decision. There was 184. Now these numbers is what my mother, my mother wrote these numbers down. It's not numbers that I pulled out of the air. 20 some odd families, 184 people from the age of two, which was my sister, to the age of 93. My father was able to get a hold of two boxcars, cattle cars, a train engine, and decided to escape. Where to? After the war, the United States, Britain, France opened up DP camps, displaced persons camps. They were old German army camps for the most part. The nearest one that was safe was 1,800 miles away outside the city of Salzburg, Austria.
It was called Beth Bialik, a dilapidated, bombed, most of the barracks didn't even have a roof, but it was taken over by the United States Armed Forces because people had to be saved. A lot of people don't realize that after the war, what happened to the hundreds of thousands that did survive, survived the concentration camps, or survived the forests, survived hiding. They could, they had no other place to go. Their homes were taken away from them. Their property was taken away from them. So all they had could do was go to these DP camps, displaced persons camps. Now, 1,800 miles by train, what, a week at the most? It took us nine and a half weeks. And all we had was what we wore. We could only travel under darkness because if the Russians caught us, they would lock us inside that boxcar and set us on fire. That's what they liked to do. No toilet facilities. If you wanted to go to the bathroom, you just squatted down because you couldn't get out of that boxcar because if you did, if someone got lost, that was it. We were covered in human waste, lice, roaches. If one of the elderly, and they did, passed away, we couldn't even give them a decent burial, a decent funeral. The bodies was just thrown off the train. It made us almost inhuman, but we had to survive. Finally, late November 1945, we crossed the border into Austria. Now, ladies and gentlemen, everything that I've told you up until now about what happened, of course, I got that from my mother as I was growing up. The rest of the story and the rest of the journey is what I remember with my own eyes. I was five years old. The doors of the boxcar opened up. There are bright spotlights. And I've looked down, and there are soldiers. Uh-oh. I didn't know, you know, American soldiers, German soldiers, I didn't, you know, I was scared to death. I really was. But then I realized these soldiers, none of them had a gun. None of them were there to kill us. None of them were there screaming at us like we were animals. They took us off the train very gently. 
There were 32 children, my sister being the youngest, and they separated the girls from the boys. That was nice. And they took us into an infirmary where there were American Army nurses. It was a very clean, white room. It was fantastic. But we were covered in waste, human waste, roaches crawling all over us, lice crawling all over us. They took the clothes off of us, got us cleaned up, and then they started spraying us with a delousing powder. They had this, um, like you see, the exterminators. And they sprayed us with this delousing powder. And then the bugs and the roaches and the lice started falling off of us. And we started bleeding from the bites. I've got enough scars on my lower back and my legs. Just, just a reminder so I don't ever forget what happened. They got us cleaned up. They gave my father a couple of blankets and what barrack to go to. And these barracks, a lot of them didn't even have roofs or, you know, and when it rained, we slept on mud. But we were given food, we were given medical attention, and it took about a year and a half. Now, after we started looking like human beings, they had to transfer us to another camp because still other people still kept coming. So we were transferred to a camp called Halide. Halad was almost like a resort. That's me on the left the day before we were transferred. I got clothes and I looked human. My mother said that day that we crossed the border I weighed 18 pounds as a five-year-old. Picture on the right. Well, that's my mother, myself, my sister, and my little sister, Ethel, who was born in the DP camp of Austria, along with thousands and thousands of others. There were more weddings, more births than you could ever imagine. By the way, who do you not see in this picture? My father. Why? As I said, he spent more time searching for family that he never found. Once we were transferred, we were given our own room. We had a window. We had a door. We had food. But we, what we did not have was necessities, knives and forks and sheets, plates to eat off of. That you had to buy. You had to buy that. 
Nobody's got any money. So, what does my father do? Well, he does what he does best. He went underground again and formed a group of friends, black market, and buy cigarettes and uh, whatever necessities they would sell and they would trade. And he did a pretty good job of it. This next picture is one of my favorite pictures. That's my father in the background. And those are the gentlemen that he worked with underground. And he lovingly called this his office. It was a beer garden outside the DP camp. And that's him in the background. He loved his beer. This is my seventh birthday party. Boy, I tell you what, there were birthday parties every day, every night in this place. Everybody loved to celebrate their birthdays because they could. And those are my friends, my mother in the background. Just one real interesting story. Every afternoon, we found out that a convoy of American GIs would come right through the camp in the front, main road. And we would take our little flags, and we ran up to the gate and wave, and they would stop. And when they did, they started throwing candy bars at us. I had more Hershey bars thrown at me, boxes of them. We could all eat together for a long time. Just one thing that, you know, the GIs after World War II did. If it wasn't for the American GIs after the war, that number of six million would have been much higher. So, sir, I thank you for your service. Now, our hope and our prayer, of course, was to go to Israel. That wasn't going to happen because Ben-Gurion announced independence, there was a war, and the British said, hey, nobody's getting into Israel. And we were told it would be another eight or ten years before we could get. Now, we'd already been there about four years. My mother said, no way. I'm not spending another eight or ten years. Now, she wanted to go to Israel because she had sisters there. But she decided to sign up to go to America, to go to the United States. We were eligible. It took us almost two years for that process. Life in the DP camp, that's me on my way for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And you don't see a soldier behind me beating me. On the right, hey, Every little Jewish boy has to go to Haider, has to go to 
Hebrew school. So during the summer, I would run in and put on my Talit Katan. On my way, I'm barefoot, but I had to go. That was mandatory. Finally, November 16, 1950, we board the USS General Bilal on our way to America. Ten days later, the day before Thanksgiving, 1950, as I'm sleeping down below deck, my father comes down and wakes me up and he says, we got to go up on deck. There's something I need to show you. We go up on deck. Now the, and I notice that the ship is standing still and we get to the rails, and I look out, and everybody is either crying or laughing or singing. And I look out, and I kind of see why. I saw her. There she was, all lit up. And I could hear what she was saying. She was saying, welcome. She was saying, you are home. You are safe. You have a future. There she was. They take us to Ellis Island. They separate the three, our, the three of us and put us into a, another room. I didn't like that. I didn't like being separated from my parents, but my parents had to go in and be processed in. But as we sat in this room with the other children, in walks in the Red Cross volunteers, and they're putting the, they put down this big tray in front of all the kids. The most wonderful thing you could possibly imagine. Donuts. <laughs> Good old American donuts. Milk, hey, I'm eight years old. I can do this, this is good. Then they give us a box, Red Cross, and inside are gifts from sixth graders in the United States. Well, hey, I'm eight years old. Maybe I got a bunch of toys. No, no toys. A white washcloth, a tube of toothpaste, Colgate, a bar of Life Boy soap, a toothbrush, and a roll of five flavor lifesavers. <laughs> that was my wonderful, wonderful gift from the sixth graders of the United States. They put us on a train, and we're on our way to Atlanta. Georgia. To me, it could have been Timbuktu. I had no idea. None of us speak English. Later that night, the conductor comes over and motions that we have to get off. We don't speak English. He takes us off the train and he parks us 
Thanksgiving morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning, parks us right in the middle of Union Station in Washington, D.C. And here we are. We look like the Von Trapp family. <laughs> Finally, there was a soldier on his way home for Thanksgiving. And he kept looking and kept looking. And he finally figured out that we weren't from around here. He walks over. My father hands him our papers. And he finally realizes where and what train. Puts us on the right train. And he has a sack full of tangerines, because he was going home for Thanksgiving. He takes a tangerine and gives me one and my sister's one. And then he goes in his pocket and he takes out a beautiful, brand new, shiny 50 cent piece and hands it to me. Still have it. Still have it for the simple reason just to remind me of what the GIs did to save thousands and thousands and thousands of human beings after the war. We get to Atlanta. They put us up in a hotel for a couple of days. And by the way, that's my green card with my Russian name. November the 25th, 1950 is when I came to the United States. They finally said we have a sponsor, a family, right there where Turner Field was across the street. And it's a little three-room apartment above their home. That family became lifelong friends. The next Monday morning, Mrs. Goldwasser, who was the lady, she comes up and takes me and my sister Ann and gets us dressed and marches us down the street about three blocks to James L. Key Elementary School. We sit in the principal's office. My sister is taken crying and screaming. She was scared to death, and so was I. I was scared to death. I had no discipline. I had, I had nothing. Just a scared little boy. A few minutes later, a teacher walks in, young lady, about 22, gorgeous. She looks at me, and she's a third grade teacher. She takes a look at me, and she says, you are now an American. You will learn how to read, how to write. You will learn American history, American geography, no more of the past. That teacher 
walked me down the hallway, holding my hand. We walk into the third grade. And six months later, I could read, I could write, I knew my American history for the most part. I could name every president. I could tell you every state that what they grew in their capitals. One day, I was doing a presentation about Abraham Lincoln. It was in February, just about three months after I got there. And I was doing a presentation about Abraham Lincoln. And our clothes, we didn't have much clothes, a lot of stuff that was just donated to us. And I had on a pair of pants that was about three sizes too small. And you know how third graders can be. Well, they laughed at me, kept laughing. This teacher, her name was Frances Fitterman, stood up and told them to shut up. Told them that that was not how to treat a different person. That afternoon when school ended, she grabbed me, got in her car, and she took me downtown Atlanta, richest department store, and bought me my first pair of jeans. She also took me to the library and got me my first library card. That teacher is the reason that I could stand here and speak to you. Because if it hadn't been for her, I don't know which direction I would have been able to go to. My father became a citizen. My father had a job with a large scrap metal company. One afternoon, he got hurt. Couldn't work any longer. So the man who owned the company took my father to the First National Bank of Atlanta and co-signed an $1,800 loan for my father. My father bought a small neighborhood grocery store in an area of Atlanta called Buttermilk Bottom. Anybody ever hear of Buttermilk Bottom? You look a lot younger than that. <laughs> Buttermilk Bottom was one of the worst black ghettos in the city of Atlanta that you could possibly imagine. Young black children walking around barefoot, cold, hungry, living in squalor, without electricity, without running water, right in the middle of downtown Atlanta, in the United States. My father said, what the heck is wrong with this picture? My father owned that business from 1952 to 1969. And in that time, he paid it forward. He helped to feed. He would give food away. He would give food on credit. He would take kids to Grady if they needed medical attention. He did what he could. And he taught me and my sisters. <laughs> and 
and he taught me and my sisters to be the same type of person. My mother also became a citizen. She was in a lot of pain most of the time, but she did her part. My sisters were very much involved in the USO at Fort Benning, and they would bring soldiers home. Matter of fact, they both of them married one. And my mother would cook for Shabbat. I remember one Friday night, there was about 19 soldiers at my mother's Shabbat table. So that's the type of person my mother was. Oh, and by the way, that teacher that I was talking about, she's still around. She, she and I have the same birthday, so we just... Yeah, I just turned 78, and she just turned 94. But, and every once, whenever we get together, she still has this thing about putting her fingernails into my upper arm. And she, she, while she did it, she smiled, you know, <laughs> as I was in her class. Like I said, she, she gave me the discipline that I needed. Now... I said my father owns his business. One afternoon in 1963, I walk into my father's store. It was my job to drive him home because he never drove a car. His nerves were shot. And I walk in, and he's having a conversation with this gentleman. My father's broken English was, oh, you should have heard it. You could, you know. And this gentleman that he was talking to I mean, he spoke beautifully. And the two of them just had a ball talking and laughing. Dr. Martin Luther King and my dad were friends from 1963, of course, to 1968 when he was shot. Dr. King fought against Hatred, in his way, my father fought against hatred in his way, quietly. I grew up in Atlanta, went to high school, typical teenager, joined all the clubs, followed all the girls, and I found one that was so beautiful I couldn't resist. My wife, Rochelle, and we've been married for over 55 years. I became a, a human being. Took a job as a salesman, retail, worked for Macy's for years, worked for Havity's for years, and finally, I have a family. That's me when I had hair. <laughs> my wife, Rochelle, next to me. On the other side is my little brother, George, who was born in the United States. 
In front of me is my oldest son, Jeff, and to the left and to the right, Captain Herman Perlman, Captain Stuart Grossman, both United States officers in Vietnam. Both my sisters married soldiers. Those are my sisters, Anne and Ethel. My sister Anne is holding my nephew, David. David has grown up, and he is now Dr. David Perlman, professor of medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. How, how many of those would have, one and a half million children would have grown up to be doctors, professors? How many of them would have maybe invented cures? They were not given that chance. Now, the rest of the story. That's my oldest son, Jeff. On my left, he owns one of the, he runs one of the largest wholesale groceries distributors in the United States up in Connecticut. Next to him, my beautiful oldest granddaughter, Erin, graduated from Eastern Michigan University, summa cum laude, and now teaches high school Spanish in Virginia Beach. Behind her, that's her brother, Eddie, graduated from The Ohio State University with honors, and a week from today will graduate from Georgia State with a law degree. In front of him, that's in the yellow, that's his wife, Emily, also graduated from The Ohio State University and now teaches special education pre-K five and six-year-olds in Gwinnett County. And last year, she was voted Teacher of the Year in her school. Of course, that's me and my wife. And standing next to me, my youngest grandson, Corey, also graduated from The Ohio State University, and now at 22 owns, one of his, owns his own political consulting. He does, he's a campaign manager for politicians in the state of Ohio at 22. And of course, next to him is my youngest granddaughter, Hannah, who's a sophomore at Georgia Southern, and yesterday came back from France. She studied in France for the last six months. And next to her, that's her mother, Karen, who's also a teacher, teaches, teaches science in Gwinnett County. And my youngest son, Jacob, who runs one of the largest IT companies dealing with medical insurance for teachers. It's all well and good. Now, ladies and gentlemen, 
If you think that I enjoyed standing up here and telling you how my family was murdered, you're mistaken. I didn't enjoy telling you about that. But I had to. What I talk to school children, and that's who I'm talking to now, you adults, I don't know, you might be far gone. <laughs> I asked the school children, and I talked to thousands of, thousands of them every year at the Bremen and all over the state. And I beg of them three things. Promise me. Number one, respect your parents. My parents did for me to save me. Number two, respect your teachers. Your teachers will do for you what my teacher did for me. They want you to be a decent human being with a good education. And of course, number three and the most important thing, respect each other. If you're in school, don't be a bully. Don't. If you see something wrong, if somebody is doing something wrong, don't just be a bystander. That was the problem. There were bystanders. They didn't care. So don't be a bystander. Do something. Take that person that's being bullied and be a friend. If you do that, and just realize that you actually hurt a survivor, because your children are not going to be able to hear a survivor. We're getting old. So that's all I ask. By the way, not only am I a grandfather, but I'm also a great-grandfather. That's Eli. He's two years old. And I want the same thing for him that I'm asking of you. Young men and women, you are the ones that, are going to be a that need to be able to say, yes, I heard a survivor. Yes, it happened, and I cannot let it happen again. Thank you. of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you. You may be seated. Yeah, it's when I hear his story, I remind reminds me of what my father told me about our family. In New York, where our family has a, a family plot, we were fortunate many of my family came out just before the Holocaust. My grandfather came over when he was 11 years old. 
But we have a memorial in the back of the cemetery, and it has a list of names on it. And that would have been what back then would have been first and second cousins, and there's over 200 names of family members that were lost in the Holocaust. And if you look at our whole family, it was over 2,000. In the 1980s, when Russia was falling, and I was getting ready to graduate college the next year, our school was leading a trip to Russia. And they were going to Minsk, which is where my family is from. We were actually from the, the Minsk and Poland are right there on the border. And uh, there's actually a, a ghetto. It's still around today. And it's, if you search the internet and type in S-O-K-O-L-O-W, it will show up. And that's where our family was from. And so we went to Minsk and we toured around. And there's a memorial there for those that were killed. It's the only one that's written in Russian. Um, it was three languages, Russia, Poland, and one other. And it tells about those who were killed. And I literally couldn't go down to this area. It was such a, a heaviness on me. Because what they told us is what they did is when they imagined Minsk being the Atlanta of today, and they took all the surrounding counties and areas close by, the ghetto where my family would have been from is one of them, and brought all the Jews into this big field. And immediately they asked for all that were doctors and nurses to stand up, and they took them away. Hitler was a fanatic about uh, health issues. And then they asked for all those who were musicians and artists and those type of artsy people to stand up. And they stood up and they shot him dead. And they made them stand there. And if you got up for after many, many hours, they would shoot you. There was less than 1,500 that survived from that area. One thing we can do is never forget. We're seeing the rise of anti-Semitism again in not only our nation and around the world. We're blessed here to be both Jew and Gentile. And it was those people who helped hide us, our families, that allowed us to be here today. Could you imagine all those great doctors and uh, theologians and others that we lost due to the Holocaust. But it was the fighters that remained. So we should never forget the promise and what they did and, and to hear the stories and the pictures. It's absolutely amazing. And thank you all for coming. I want to share with you one closing story. It's actually about my our friend, Rabbi Eric Tokager. He told me a story a couple of years ago that really was amazing about his, it was his grandparents. They had gotten married over in Russia, and due to the war, they were separated, thinking the other one had perished. They went on to their ways. Like you said, your father went looking for family members. 
By chance, both of them came to the States. Neither never remarried. And if you're in New York, you have friends and they get, would get together. And they were telling this man about this woman that he should meet. And he finally got up enough nerve to go to the event they were having. And when they got there, that woman that they thought would be perfect from him, for him was, because it was his wife. And they were able to reunite. You know, back then we didn't have the internet. You couldn't look up on Facebook your friends and family. And it's these kind of stories that reminds us what our people have gone through. And it's the Tyndall Boons who helped hide us and our families that made this possible. God has brought us together for this reason. But we have to remember we can never forget. When we were in Buenos Aires, Rosario, Argentina, and we did the festival down there of Jewish music and dance and proclaimed the gospel, we got to meet a, a Holocaust survivor who had a very similar story. She was a young lady who hid in the woods. And it's just amazing to hear these stories and to realize that each year fewer and fewer are going to be around to tell the story. But we can never forget. So thank you all for coming and thank you for serving our country. As he said, it made a big difference. Let's all bow our heads. Abba Father, we just come before you right now. And Lord, we thank you for the blessings you've given us. But Lord, we also remember those that perished. Those who perished serving our nation and other nations fighting the enemy. Those brave soldiers, men and women alike. And Lord, we pray for those that were killed in the Holocaust. But Lord, we also pray for those that survived. That have the scars, the memories. Lord, let them continue to be able to share so we can understand what truly happened. And we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for what came from that, from out of dust, was rebirthed the land of Israel. We thank you for that blessing. What man tried to destroy, what man tried for bad, God turned to good. We ask this in your son Yeshua's precious name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Yeah, I mentioned about my, my brother Jay has been doing a lot with Israel. He was the signer for the, the witness for when President Trump signed over the Golan Heights acknowledging that Israel has that as, an, as, a, as its property. I found out the other day my brother was a big influence on getting that done. If you notice, it kind of came out of nowhere. And I was told by my other brother that Jay got a call from Netanyahu and said, we need to get this done. 
And guess what happened? It got done. It's an amazing time we're living in. As the Messianic community is becoming more and more mainstream. The Prime Minister of Israel asked a Jewish believer, happened to be a good lawyer, not only to talk to President Trump, but to defend Israel in the world court. Jay and his organization has gone to The Hague twice defending Israel against false charges. They could have picked any lawyer in the world, but they picked my brother. I remember when Jay was over there one time and they had a security guard with him and the guard said, so do you want to know about your family? Now you might ask, why would they know about our family? Trust me, when you're doing stuff for the Israeli government, they know about your family. And we knew that we were related to Nukum Sokolov. And that name kind of rings a bell, or maybe it doesn't. He was the co-writer of the Balfour Declaration. And we had two great-great uncles that were very influential with that, and they also headed up the newspaper in Israel and in Europe um, and were a very big part of that. And there's a book that they had reprinted that from Nukum Sokolov, and it's amazing because when they were talking about the rebirth of the nation, and they said, who is considered a Jew? It actually mentions about Messianic Jews as being considered Jewish. So we didn't lose our Jewish identity. If Hitler came here today, I would still be, I would have a star on myself and be going to the chambers. We can be proud of who we are and who we associate with because we serve a living God. And what man will try for bad, God will always turn to good. Amen?